Today we are not just going to be stepping into a new year, we are also going to be stepping into a new decade. Uh, today we are actually leaving the teens of the 21st century behind us and we are stepping in, into the 20s of the 20th century. We, we begin 2020 in, in just a few minutes. And I've been reflecting on, on, on the sermon that, that I should be preaching on right now on, on the New Year service, Eve service for about two to three, three months. What is the most important message we all need to hear as we begin our lives in the new decade? That's a question. And, and to be honest, I, I did not have the answer to that question till, till the third week of Advent. And as I was preparing uh, for the sermon that week, the third week of Advent, a sermon on Christ, our bridegroom Messiah, I began to see that all through the Bible, God was calling us to be loved by Him as a bride is loved by a perfect bridegroom. And that was when the penny dropped for me. And that's when I realized that the most important message that we all need to hear again and again and again and again is how much God loves us. How much God delights in us. How much God celebrates us. How much God cherishes us. And so with this in mind, we're kicking off a, a sermon series. We have already kicked it off on the third week of Advent. But we're going to stay on this theme of Christ, our bridegroom Messiah, today and for a few more weeks uh, into January as well. And so today, I want to look at a wedding. Uh, a wedding that Christ Jesus at uh, attended. Allow me to read uh, the Bible passage we are looking at tonight. I'm reading from John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, and the verses will come up for us on, on screen uh, as well. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jar, jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. When people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Verse 11. This 
the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is, this is God's word. Allow me to pray for us before we dive in uh, to this passage. Uh, Father, we pray that your word will come alive, Lord, this evening. We pray that in every one of our hearts, we will experience to a greater degree, to a more beautiful degree, to a more powerful degree, everlasting joy throbbing in our hearts. Give every one of us a deeper experience of your everlasting joy. By your word, through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'd like to draw three things for us from this uh, passage. And, and the plan is to kind of go on till around midnight and then, and then move into communion. Uh, and we, we're hoping to move from the old year to the new, from the old decade to the new, um, enjoying communion with Christ Jesus has instituted for us. I want to draw three things for us from the passage. First, Jesus the bridegroom Messiah. Second, the inadequacy of earthly bridegrooms. Third, the sufficiency of the eternal bridegroom. Jesus, the bridegroom Messiah, the inadequacy of earthly bridegrooms, and the sufficiency of the eternal bridegroom. Let's look at the first thing. Jesus, the bridegroom Messiah. Look at verse 11 from the passage that we read. This, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. All the miracles Jesus did are significant and spectacular. But John singles this miracle of Jesus, this miracle of turning water into wine, for special treatment. He is calling us to take note that this was the first miracle that Jesus did. The first miracle is like a calling card. Or, or a visiting card. Whatever miracle Jesus chooses to do first is basically going to declare the kind of Messiah he has come to be. And so what are we to make out of this calling card of turning water into wine that Jesus announced his arrival with? Let's, I think this is worth giving some thought. You know, if you could pick a miracle that you would want Jesus to do, to announce his arrival, the first miracle, what would you pick? What, what would you pick? Rising Lazarus from the dead. That's, that's a good, good calling, calling card. It announces that Jesus has conquered death itself. Or driving out demons. That will make people sit up and take notice. Jesus has overcome the devil. Jesus has overcome Satan himself. At the very least walking on water or commanding the storm to be quiet that will declare to the world that he is the lord of creation because even creation obeys him any of those would have worked but turning water into wine you know that miracle may even have offended some good and conservative christians who practice abstinence so why for heaven's sake would jesus pick turning water into wine to be his first miracle. 
hang on to that question. I'll answer that in just a little bit. The second thing that, G, that John is saying about this miracle is that this miracle, you can see that on verse 11, manifested the glory of Jesus. This miracle manifested the glory of God. That's a pretty strong statement. Consider the implication, God's glory manifested. To, to really understand the, the weight of that statement, let's, let's look back at the Bible and see a couple of instances where God's glory manifested. When the Israelites were leaving Egypt, God parted the Red Sea to allow the Israelites to go forth and, and he buried the entire Egyptian army under the waters. That is God's glory manifested. Or if you read Exodus chapter 19 and 20, when God descended on Mount Sinai, that's glory manifested. Allow me to read just some, some snapshots of that Exodus 19 and 20 experience, experience. There was thunder and lightning. There was a thick cloud that descended over the mountain. And there was a very loud trumpet blast. The Lord descended on the mountain in fire. The whole mountain trembled violently. Fire, smoke, earthquake, the works. When people saw that, uh, Exodus 20 records this for us, they were terrified. They said to Moses, Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. Do not have God speak to us or we will die. Man, this is, the manif this is what the manifest glory of God looks like. That's what you expect when you hear a statement, the glory of God was manifest. But pouring a few extra drinks at a wedding? Why is John calling that the manifest glory of God? Why is John calling that the manifest glory of God? And I want to answer that question for us. The answer is hidden not in the fact that Jesus turned water into wine, the answer lies in how much water Jesus turned into wine. The answer lies hidden not just in the fact that Jesus turned water into wine, but how much water he turned into wine, and that's what I'm going to help us see uh, from this passage. Cana, where Jesus did his first miracle, was a very small peasant village. At best, there were three or four hundred people living there. Uh, the fact that the bridegroom at the wedding was not even identified by his name tells us that he was not a very well-known person. Imagine a bridegroom who's not even identified by his name at his own wedding. And if this man ever had a chance to be identified, it was at his own wedding. And even the, the Bible doesn't identify him even at that wedding. He was basically a nobody in a small little village. The fact that they ran out of wine at his wedding tells me that he was not rich either. I mean, who would, I mean, imagine, uh, you know, if a man had even reasonable means, he would, he would ensure that the food and the wine doesn't run out of his wedding. So considering all this, I think it's reasonable to conclude that this was not a big wedding. The small size of the village, a really unknown man, not, not really rich. It tells me that maybe there were 50 to 100 people at the wedding. At the very best. That's, that's really my best guess. Now let us look at how much wine Jesus miraculously created 
for 50 to 100 wedding guests max. And you see that in the passage. John gives that for us, verses 6 and 7. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water and they filled up to the brim. Now each of these jars, if you can imagine, they're about chest high. I mean, if you're used to catching water in, in, in Mumbai or from a city like Chennai, I'm sure you've seen those big blue drums. They're kind of the width of a, of a you know, pretty stocky man and they come up to chest high. That's the kind of size we're talking about. To be precise, each of them, John tells us, holds 20 to 30 gallons of water. Let's assume 25 gallons on an average across six stone jars. That's about 150 gallons of wine. One gallon is roughly four and a half liters. And do the math and you will realize Jesus created about 900 bottles of excellent wine. 900 bottles for 50 to 100 or fewer wedding guests. That's enough wine to bathe in. Forget to drink. And I think we can all safely agree that Jesus was definitely not trying to get the wedding guests drunk. That's not what Jesus was trying to do. Why so much wine? Verse 11 tells us that his disciples believed in Jesus when they saw him. Verse 11 tells us that the disciples believed Jesus was the Messiah when they saw him turn all that water, 900 bottles to be precise, in to wine. What did they see that we're not able to see? Now, if all his disciples had been from Kerala, they would have seen all the wine and said, the Messiah is here. If you're a Keralaite, don't get offended. I'm half Keralaite. My wife is full Keralaite. Now, we all know how much Keralaites like their drinks, right? We all know, maybe one disciple came to Kerala, but we know none of them are, are, are from Kerala. So why did the disciples believe that Jesus was the Messiah just because he created an abundance of wine? The answer lies in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is that part of the Bible that was written long before Jesus was born. In fact, some portions of the Old Testament, Exodus, which we read, was perhaps written about a thousand years before Christ was born. And all of the Old Testament is basically talking about the Messiah to come, Christ Jesus to come. And the Old Testament gave us, gives us many descriptions of the come. And one fairly frequent description was that when the Messiah comes, there will be an abundant overflow of wine. Let me just show, read us a couple of passages from the Old Testament. Let me read from Amos chapter 9. Amos is a, is a minor prophet in the Old Testament. This is what he says. He talks about the days of the coming Messiah. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one trading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. That's, that's how 
Amos is describing the arrival of, Mes- of the Messiah accompanied by an abundance of wine. Here's one more passage. This is from Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 to 8. On this mountain, Isaiah is another prophet. And he probably lived a few hundred years before Christ was born. Of this, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Clearly, this is talking about Jesus Christ, the only one ever to overcome death and give that victory to every one of us who believe in him. Those are two verses. I'm going to give us a bunch of references. I don't have time to read all of them. Jeremiah 31, 12 talks about the same thing. The coming of the Messiah being accompanied by an abundant overflow of wine. Hosea 14, 7 says the same thing. Joel 13, 18 also says mountains will drip with new wine when the Messiah comes. Why did Jesus turn water into 900 bottles of excellent wine? Jesus was inviting his disciples to see that what the prophets Amos and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and Joel had prophesied about the Messiah was now fulfilled by Jesus at the wedding of a nondescript couple in Cana. Jesus had just established beyond any doubt in the minds of the disciples that the Messiah had indeed come because the wine was flowing abundantly, overflowing abundantly. The wine, of course, is, we're not talking about alcohol here. The wine, of course, is symbolic of the earthly and eternal joy and blessing in Christ that he gives us when we come to believe in him. That was the manifest glory of Jesus Christ that the disciples saw. That is why they believed he was the Messiah. Stay with me one more minute while I close this thought out. If you're here for the third week of Advent, the sermon was on Christ the Bridegroom Messiah. In that sermon, we had connected John chapter 3 and John chapter 4 to show us how Christ was revealing himself to the world as the bridegroom Messiah. You know, we saw how John the Baptist called Jesus the bridegroom in John chapter 3. And in John chapter 4, Jesus goes to the well and meets with a Samaritan woman who had five husbands and the man she was living with was not her husband. We saw in that sermon that in the Old Testament days, when men needed to find wives, they would go to the well. We looked at how Moses met Zipporah at the well. We saw how Abraham's servant found a wife for Isaac at the well. We saw how Jacob met Rachel at the well. And here in John chapter 4, one chapter after John declares that Jesus is the bridegroom Messiah, Jesus is at the well talking with a Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman, of course, represents all of us. All of us sinful, messed up people longing for love. John was working the theme of the wedding throughout the narrative that, of the gospel that, that he wrote. 
eliminating sequence of, of, of events as John is unfolding for us in the gospel that he wrote. John chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine at a wedding, announcing he is the bridegroom Messiah. John chapter 3, John the Baptist declares publicly that Jesus is the bridegroom Messiah. John chapter 4, Jesus meets with the Samaritan women at the well. This Sunday, few days, few days from now, I'm going to be looking at John chapter 12 and 14 and 20 to show us how in all of these portions, the same theme of Christ the bridegroom Messiah is being unfolded for us. But for now, let's go back to, let's go back to this passage, John chapter 2, and I want to unpack for us the second thing that I want to draw our attention to from this passage, the inadequacy of earthly bridegrooms. The narrative of the wedding at Cana begins with the failure of the earthly bridegroom. This man who was being married that day had totally messed up. This was the most important day of his life and he fell short. In that culture, it was shameful it brought dishonor, not just to himself, it brought dishonor to his entire family to fall short of hospitality to the guests at your wedding. And it is the failure of this earthly bridegroom that sets up the entry of Christ Jesus, the eternal bridegroom. The failure of this earthly bridegroom is indicative that every person and everything that we put our trust in, trust only God deserves, will fail us one day. They will all fail us one day. The narrative that John is unfolding through the gospel that he wrote for us is a narrative of Jesus Christ, the bridegroom Messiah, or the lover Savior who will never fail us. If we were to be really honest with ourselves, we have to admit that none of us will ever be fully fulfilled with an earthly spouse. The truth is, deep, 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 deep inside, we all know it. The truth is, no one less than God himself as our lover savior will ever fully satisfy our longing to be loved well. Jesus became the bridegroom Messiah because only God could fulfill the deep longing every one of us have to be loved. Mere earthly bridegrooms can never satisfy this longing for the simple reason that men and women were not created merely and primarily for one another. We were created primarily for God. And it is only in God's plan, it is only in God's scheme of things, it is only in God's presence that men and women can fit together well. And so... This is a truly extraordinary way in which God is revealing himself and even 
endearing himself to men and women as their bridegroom messiah and lover savior i want to really press into the application for us here the application is a very simple one we need this love we need to be loved by god we need to experience the love of god for our emotions for our mind for our intellect for our society to work meaningfully to work properly we need to experience the love of god our life will never hold together without this bridegroom who gives us the true wine of joy and gladness our love our life will never be wholesome or complete unless we have this bridegroom messiah loving us as i've been reflecting on my own life i'm becoming more and more aware that all of the striving for success that is in me is flowing out of a deep need to be loved i'm not speaking for anybody else here i'm speaking for myself my desire for success in, in, in whatever area of my life is springing forth from my need to be loved more you know actually from the beginning of this year i'm becoming more and more aware of this meta narrative that has been driving my life deep 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 inside i wrongly believe the more successful i am the more people will love me and i'm beginning to see maybe for the first time in my life that my pursuit of success is just a lonely cry to be loved our pursuit of success is just a lonely cry to be loved perhaps just perhaps the fiercer our pursuit of success the greater our longing to be loved i'm learning to see how this longing for love in, in its various forms is ruling me this longing for love is shaping me it is breaking me it is driving me it is lifting me up it is also crushing me it is influencing every thought word action indeed yeah i'm beginning to see that in my own life maybe it's true for yours as well there's also a second realization that i've been growing in over the last few months it's simply this even though i'm a pastor i'm seeing in my own life there is this huge gap between how much i know god loves me and how much i'm actually experiencing and enjoying god's love this gap is between how much i know god loves me and how much i'm actually 
experiencing and enjoying God's love. And I guess this, this gap exists in, in all of our lives. And I'm beginning to understand that the, the way to lead more wholesome lives, the way to lead more meaningful lives, the way to live lives of joy and purpose and meaning and even lives of success, I'm beginning to understand is by learning to experience and enjoy God's love more and more and more. We all need to learn to be loved by God. It doesn't come easy. I'm seeing this in my life. I don't want to sit. I don't want to wait to be loved by God. I want to go and do things to earn His love and the love of men and women around me. At some level, we all don't know how to be loved by God. The Bible understands this. The Bible understands this, this human nature, this fallen nature that is there in every one of us. And that is why all through the Bible, not just in the book of John, all through the Bible, God is revealing himself to us as a bridegroom messiah. And over the next few weeks in January, we're going to be walking through, I'm going to be walking through Exodus from Mount Sinai that we looked at. I'm going to be looking at Song of Songs. I'm going to look at some Psalms. I'm going to go back to John. All through the Bible, I want to help us see that how, is God, how God is constantly revealing himself to us as a bridegroom messiah, as a lover savior, because he knows the deep longing for love in every one of our hearts. And so, so the thought I want to leave us with this evening is pretty simple. Will you receive this Jesus? Will you take his hand? Will you respond to his whisper of endearment right now will you allow him to love you will we yield to the love of christ that brings us to the last thing that i want to draw for us from this passage the sufficiency of the eternal bridegroom in this passage in john chapter 2 which we're looking at tonight there's an interesting exchange between jesus and his mother just before he performs the miracle of turning water into wine. Allow me to read that for us. Verse 3, it's going to come up for us on the screen as well. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. There's a little bit of a sharp conversation here. Uh, I can assure you, Jesus is not being rude to his mother, to his earthly mother. Uh, he is not dishonoring her. He is definitely not sinning against her mother, his mother. But this conversation does show us that Jesus does not appreciate Mary's suggestion here. He does not appreciate Mary's suggestion to fix the wine problem in that wedding because Mary's suggestion is short-sighted. Her suggestion is incomplete. You see, Mary is thinking only about this 
earthly wedding. Mary is only thinking about the earthly wine that flows when the grapefruit is crushed. But Jesus is thinking even more of the eternal wine which will flow when he himself is crushed in the winepress of God's holy and just wrath. That's pretty obvious from the second part of verse 4 where, John, where Jesus says, His hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. The hour in the book of John always refers to the hour that Jesus would be crucified to his death. The word hour has come, is, appears in John maybe eight, ten times, and every single time Jesus is saying, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come. Or at the Passover meal, he says, my hour has come. You see, at the earthly wedding, it was quite easy for Jesus to turn the water into wine. But this was not the real deal. The, the turning of water into wine at Cana at that wedding is merely pointing to the real deal. The real deal was his death on the cross, bearing the punishment for all of your sins and mine. The real deal was Jesus being crushed by God himself so that the eternal wine of joy and gladness and eternal life can flow into us. Jesus the bridegroom Messiah does not merely offer us wine that flows when grapefruit is crushed. Jesus offers us the wine that flows when he himself is crushed. This is the hour that he was waiting for, the hour of his crucifixion. This is the wedding he was waiting for. This is the eternal wine of life, joy, gladness and blessing that he is offering to us through his suffering and death on the cross. Jesus drank from the cup of wrath for you. Will you drink the cup of joy with him? Let's pray. Father, we pray that your word and your spirit, Lord, will usher in your very presence into our hearts, right now Lord we pray that every one of us we will be able to experience not just know but experience in a real tangible way this love this great fierce love the love of the bridegroom Messiah that God the Father that God the Son Christ Jesus and God the Holy Spirit loves us with help us experience this here and now even as we move into communion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.